Now, one of the biggest problems that a lot of institutions face, and when I first was coming in to interview for the job, the first thing I said was, you create a lot of content. <laughs> and so creating the right content and really connecting it to your strategy, I think, is you know where a lot of institutions fall short because we have so many stories. We, have, I mean, we could tell stories about every department and students and faculty and staff across the entire institution. It's really a matter of strategically choosing which stories are going to be the most impactful for which audiences. Hey there, and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. Each week, the Enrollify podcast equips you with insights into how the latest trends in marketing and technology are affecting today's enrollment marketers. Every episode is designed to inspire new creative ideas for how to optimize the resources you do have to generate the results that you need. I'm your host, Zach Cruz. Welcome to the show. All right, Brian, we are live. Dude, I have followed you on LinkedIn for, for so long, and I feel like I know you, but I don't actually know you. So uh, I'm just very thankful that you're here. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to connect. And I've been enjoying the show immensely. So tons of great content that's been coming out. And, and yeah, love it. Well, great. I feel like in some ways I'm talking to sort of like somebody who knows way more about the thing that I espouse to be a semi-expert in. So I'm a little nervous for this conversation, man, because when I think about you and, and all the work that you've done in, in content marketing, you're you're sort of like a content marketing like God, like a guru of, of sorts. And it's something that I that I love. So I'm a little intimidated by this conversation, but I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. And and no need to be intimidated. I, I'm always talking with all sorts of way more experienced content marketers than me. And it's just a great opportunity to learn. And I learn a lot from everybody that I talk to, no matter where they are. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have to start by just hearing the story behind how you and Joe Paluzzi got together to write a book. Because I have followed Joe for probably since I was like 19 years old, right? And, and in my mind, right, HubSpot sort of like wrote the book on inbound marketing, but like really everything that Joe was doing with Content Marketing Institute before, they, they were the precursor to, to inbound. Inbound sort of like took this idea of content marketing and applied maybe a little bit more of a concrete framework to it. But Joe's like the, the OG content marketer in, in some respects. So how do you and him end up meeting and how do you guys get to collaborate on such an exciting project together? Well, it's an interesting story because it starts off like back in 1996 when I got into web developing, got my first job as a web developer, not a very good web developer or a very talented web developer. And I was working with a bunch <laughs> of people who were really good. So they would always put me over like on the content side, just go do that like search engine stuff and, and you know, <laughs> like, all right, all right. So I, I kind of stayed in the web development space, did some time at a marketing agency, and then got a, a, into a defense contracting company. And then in 2013, I read the first edition of Epic. Okay. And it blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, you can market just by telling stories and by building this trust. And so I went right down to the marketing department and I told the VP that she needed to hire me to be their digital marketer because no one knew what content marketing was at the time. So <laughs> so she took a chance. And between the SEO and the audience focus, we doubled our organic traffic in the first year. Wow. And that kind of led me into getting my current job at the University of Rochester, where 
within the first month that I was there, I talked them into sending me to Content Marketing World, which was Joe's event. Yeah. So I went in the very first year. I tracked him down. I stalked him. I took a selfie with him and thanked him for writing the book and changing my career path. <laughs> um, and then in 2020, I started presenting at Content Marketing World, virtual, of course, that that year. And then in, in 2021, it was a much smaller crowd. You know, events were just getting rolling again. So I got to spend some, you know, good time with Joe and really talk to him about, you know, the the changes in the book and the landscape. And and then like, I don't know, uh, uh, six months or so after that in, in 2022, I was in a Slack channel, the Content Marketing Institute Slack channel. They had a book club in there. Okay. They were talking about Content Inc. And Joe was in the room and there were only like four of us in this Slack channel. And so I asked Joe, I was like, so what about, you know, doing that second edition of Epic? And he said, yeah, co-author it with me and we'll do it. So, wow, that was it. So the book that changed my career path the first time now has, you know, changed my career path again. So, wow, that is, a, I mean, such an amazing story and such an amazing opportunity. Had you ever written a book before? Like, did you know what you were doing at all or are you kind of making it up as you went along? Well, I was a creative writing major in college with a philosophy okay. minor. So really okay. set to like wait tables forever. <laughs> so, you know, writing was, you know, something that I loved. And I had read a bunch of business books and read all of Joe's books. And so, you know, really at first we were like, well, we're just going to, you know, update some of the stats and, you know, every, everything else should be pretty much the same. And then when we started digging into it, it's like now it's the landscape has changed dramatically and and content marketing has evolved and and so then we're like we'll throw everything out and we'll start over brand new and this was about you know we had 3 months left to hit our deadline and I was panicking at that time cuz he had already told me that I was going to do most of the heavy lifting yeah. on the rewrite <laughs> um, but once we started going and and talking about it we realized that a lot of the basics still apply. And, you know, mm. so it was just kind of updating some of the technology. Uh, and then we had so many more case studies because so many groups have been doing content marketing for, for that whole 10 year period. So, yeah, I remember when I was in conversations with folks, uh, this was probably back in 2014 when HubSpot was again, still, still relatively new and very much just like marketing automation software. Like you could build some like very simple landing pages. It, you know, it was nowhere near like the robust CRM that it is today. And I, I distinctly remember being in conversations with folks at HubSpot talking about like content marketing and, and how content marketing was sort of like at that particular moment in time, it seemed like it wasn't enough because folks couldn't track it, right? Like, and like the whole, like a lot of the poo-pooing around content marketing was like, you can't just build content and have it live out there and have no like structure or strategy for it. Like inbound is the strategy for content marketing. Like that was a lot of the framing that they were using, right? And, and what's funny is like, when I think about where we're at today, a lot of that, you know, I certainly agree with, but it's funny to see some brands I think now start actually shifting away from worrying so much about like performance-based marketing, right? And, and and actually like going back in some respects to the early days of content marketing being like, let's just tell incredible stories. Let's obsess over the quality of the storytelling. And of course, let's have a solid distribution channel or distribution strategy, I should say. But then let's not worry about all the other stuff. Like you see Airbnb doing this, right? With like their brand marketing. Like it's just funny to see how stuff that Joe was talking about well over a decade ago seems to kind of be back 
back in style. What are what are your thoughts on 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 those observations? Yeah, absolutely agree entirely. I think it's so important for you know for brands, higher ed, any any business, any industry, even you know personal brands. You really have to start thinking of your content as an asset. Mm. You look at like Red Bull. Yeah. You know, people people think Red Bull is an energy drink company. They don't even make their own energy drink. They outsource that <laughs> to a beverage company that handles all of that. They are a media company. Yeah. And they get value and they, they make a lot of their revenue through their media. And that's how they connect with their audiences. And that's how they build that trust. And that's why they have so many just rabid fans who love everything that they do because they really know their audience they really understand what they want, and they're just creating all that content and putting it out there for them. Yeah. It's funny to see some of the entrepreneurs that like I know and, and love and, and respect uh, who've built really great companies and or who've built incredible like software products. And it seems like everyone ends up getting into media and like content, right? Meaning like if you've made it, right? Like like I think Elon Musk is actually a really interesting example of this, right? Like Elon Musk is an incredible content marketer. Like he's he's built, you know, incredible companies. Obviously, he's you know, a semi-controversial figure. But like uh, he, you can't deny that he knows. He knows how to freaking crush content marketing. Yeah. And, and it's just funny to see how in some respects, right, like in order to compete in today's market, in order to be a company in the world today, like you really have to, if not be a media company, look and act in many ways like a media company. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it all comes back to building that trust with your audience and society needs trust. We have a, we, you know, right now in, in the state that we are currently in, everyone is not trusting anyone else. You can't trust what you see online. You can't trust anything digitally. Yeah. So people are looking for a way to connect and doing content marketing and consistently over a long period of time, putting out content that helps your users is how you build up that trust. I think that's just so critical for, for any brand to, you know, think about the future is to think about cultivating that trust with your audience. Yeah. So I want to know why you're in higher ed, right? Like you, you're clearly an incredible marketer. Like you love content. You've been in this game for a while. Your LinkedIn profile suggests that you're on the cutting edge of uh, an array of things, right? I, I want to understand like why, why you're in higher ed, because higher ed is not necessarily known as like the place where bleeding edge content marketers reside. So what is it about this, this space that is compelling to you? And, and, and why have you decided to spend, you know, a, a lot of your career here? Yeah. I mean, the, I think the thing that I love the most about this space is that there's just such a great culture of sharing. Hmm. I remember I went to my first high ed web conference and, and I go in there and I sit down and I had only been to defense contracting conferences before where nobody can talk about what they're doing, you know, or they <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and I sat down at a table and within five minutes, all these people who I had no idea who they were, were all talking about what we're doing and what tactics we're trying and what's working and what's not. And I was like, this is just amazing, you know? Huh. And you tie that in with the fact that our, our whole job really as institutions is to help our students grow, is to try yeah. to, you know, educate people and train people and put them in a path that gets them to doing something they love to do. So it's all about, you know, improving the world. So I, I love being a part of that. Yeah, yeah. Very well said. And, you know, one of the things I've talked about on this show plenty 
is this this whole idea that like higher ed actually should be some of as an industry should be like the best of content marketers because they don't have to fabricate their stories like their stories are real and yet it, you know it, it's so often the case that i think we we fall short there but like most brands have to concoct some sort of story that helps you know make you think and believe that their soda or their beer or whatever it is right is going to give you the life that that individual that actor or actress has Whereas, you know, we can talk about the true story of a, you know, student from a marginalized background that has succeeded, you know, despite all of the odds. And that story can be entirely true. And so it's just it's just it's just funny that like we we haven't quite figured out how to how to leverage that at, at scale and or how to empower the people in these roles to have the time and the the resources necessary to to create these stories and, and, and to help proliferate them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the biggest problems that a lot of institutions face, and when I first was coming in to interview for the job, the first thing I said was, you create a lot of content. (laughs) And so creating the right content and really connecting it to your strategy, I think is, you know, where a lot of institutions fall short, because we have so many stories. We have, I mean, we could tell stories about every department and students and faculty and staff across the entire institution it's really a matter of strategically choosing which stories are going to be the most impactful for which audiences. And not only like when you should be telling what stories, but who should be telling what stories. Because no prospective student wants to get advice from me about why you should come to, to our university. They want to hear from other students. Yeah. And it has to be on the right channel. So there's a lot of decisions, a lot of confusion around content in higher ed, you know. Just looking for any opportunity to help, you know, provide some clarity on that. I, I want to ask you about some of the like content bets that you've made over the years that have gone really well, and, and maybe some of them that haven't performed as well. But before I do so, on on the note of sort of like storytelling and higher ed and, and creating the right content, do you think institutions will get more, for lack of a better term, provocative with their content? Like, do you think that they will have to be? Because colleges and universities are are notorious for sort of like playing like the middle ground, right? They represent a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures that believe a lot of different things. And so like when you think about the stereotypical university, like brand video, and I've talked about this zillions of times on this podcast, like you see a little bit of every flavor, you see a little bit of everybody, right? And that's very intentional. Now, one of the problems with that is as a marketer, you know that you literally cannot be all things to all people. Like that, if you go to any marketing conference ever, like you'll hear that like a thousand times, right, from every presenter. And yet that that's exactly how most of higher ed, you know, operates. And, and folks will say things like, oh, well, you know, yes, but like we're, you know, a little bit more regionally focused or like the limiters are, are still incredibly broad. So from your perspective as, as somebody who's been in the game for a while, do you think that institutions will have to get more provocative with their content? Like, will they have to risk isolating and potentially offending certain populations for the sake of creating content that is actually like compelling to their actual right fit students? Or like, how how do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a challenge and it'll, you know, it'll vary institution to institution. Some institutions will probably just based on their reputation and their brand be able to kind of continue with status quo, just expecting that they're going to continue meeting their enrollment deadlines. Yeah. But I think a lot of institutions and especially the ones that want to stand out are really going to have to focus in on specific programs, specific audiences, and be very intentional about yeah. putting out their perspective and their thoughts and 
being a little bit more challenging to, you know, what they've traditionally done and been able to get away with. I think students are looking for that. I think, you know, the next generations are looking for institutions and businesses that will take a stand against certain things or on certain issues. Yeah. I think we're going to see more of that. And and I think the institutions that don't start leaning into this are going to struggle. Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, I hope this doesn't happen. But I, what I think will happen is if you just look at sort of how like politically what's happening in our country right now, and, and you see some obviously like higher ed plays a, a component in that. And the, the stereotype for, for you know, the leading institutions anyways are, are that they're quite liberal. And, and I think that what we might see is we might see a little bit more of like – Unfortunately, and I really hope this doesn't happen, but I think colleges, universities across the country might actually have to get more political. Like they might, the, the dividing line, right, might actually be politically heavy or a lot, you know, a lot heavier uh, with respect to, to to your politics than it should be, right? And and the, and that's so sad because like that's like the antithesis of like what higher ed is is supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be this place where you can come and you can engage and where, you know, free speech is, is celebrated. And, and like, and I think in, in many ways, like we're, we're in kind of dangerous water right now. And so I hope this doesn't happen, but, but I do think, right. Higher ed as a whole is going to have to get, people are going to have to get more provocative. People are going to have to get really, very specific about the kind of audience that they are uniquely qualified to attract and not just attract by the way, but actually help, right? Not every institution is capable of helping every kind of student. And, and we should just be honest about that. Right. And so I'm excited because I think that like, this is going to be the golden era of content marketing and higher ed because there's so much on the line. Like the reputation of higher ed has, has never been, you know, more, more challenged, more talked about in, in, in pop culture, right? Like there's a lot of friction. <laughs> Let's just call it that, that, colleges and universities are dealing with today. And so I think the ones that are going to be around for the next, you know, couple decades are the ones that are going to finally start thinking very critically about the story that they are uniquely qualified to tell and then telling that at scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, some of the between, you know, not just the perception of the value of higher ed degrees, I think there are more options out there now. It used to be like if you wanted to get a really good you know, high paying job that you felt satisfaction with, you had to go to college. That was the path. Yeah. That's not the path anymore. There's these certifications. There's, you know, all sorts of different ways to, you know, you can get online education, lots of different avenues out there. And, and some businesses don't even care anymore if you have a bachelor's yeah. degree. There's a shift towards that. So I think higher ed institutions are really going to have to start looking about what value they offer and what opportunities they are providing for their students. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of content bets, right. And again, you've been a prolific creator for a long time now, like what are strategies that you've implemented and or, and or tactics that you've tried that haven't quite performed as you expected over the last couple of years? And then, and then what are some that may have outperformed your expectations? Yeah. And so it's interesting, like, you know, uh, personally, as a content creator, there are some, yeah, it's easier on my, on the, the personal side, my personal brand to play around with different things. Like I was yeah, very bullish on blockchain, web three, um, mm. like tokenization of content, owning your digital assets, the metaverse. I think there are still incredible solutions uh, in those spaces, but the hype train on web three and it took took us all for a ride, and now yeah. it left a bitter taste in a lot of people's mouths. Yeah, but I think now we're getting to see more like 
practical, useful implementations of these technologies. And I, I think people are going to talk less about, oh, this is an NFT project. And it's like, no, this is a loyalty program or, you know, mm. a different technology that's backing it up, but still the fundamental operations of it are, are the same. You know, I'm a huge proponent for, you know, the metaverse, AR, VR. We're just not ready for that yet. The technology is not there. There's no mass adoption opportunities there. Mm. Even like a year ago, I was talking with other people in my department about, you know, AI and the things we can do with it. And, you know, even before ChatGPT came out, I was looking at MidJourney and Dolly and everybody's like, nah, that's not, uh, it's not, not a thing. It's another hype cycle. It's another. Yeah. So those are kind of things that I've played around with that, that didn't really work at the time. And as far as things that have worked really well, uh, that's always yeah. kind of been my bread and butter, looking at analytics and really trying to, to watch the data and follow the data and connect it to strategy. That has been huge. We've really been looking more and focusing more on proactive SEO. So mm. looking at what people are talking about and what conversations are, have, are being had out there and matching those up with our experts and then putting out content about that. That's been working really well. Sorry, just a quick clarifying question on that. Does that mean you guys are like, you know, doing some like social monitoring and then being like, oh, wow, this is like what people are talking about. And then you go to your experts and then create content accordingly? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, Google Trends, Reddit, Answer the Public, we're using as many resources as we can to try to figure out what conversations are happening and what questions people are asking right now. And then who do we have that can answer those questions? Uh, we put out some content about, you know, when the when Ukraine war started and, and all the that conflict started, we had some people in our history department that could really answer some questions about why this conflict started and, and what the backgrounds of it were. And we got a ton of traffic to those because it was timely. Yeah, yeah. How do you, on that note, how do you get like faculty to create timely content because you know that that can be a very difficult thing to do is there is there anything that you've learned any like hack or any strategy that seems to work well for you yeah i mean when i first started at the institution we were very reactive the faculty would come to us or researchers would come to us with a story that they thought should be written about and we would create that content and now we've really flipped the tables on that where mm. We're finding, you know, not only experts within our faculty who we can reach out to, but who we can partner with and who are interested in in sharing their knowledge. It's a combination of, you know, a little bit of ego play. You're you're the expert in this. You can really provide new insights. But our content officers are really good at creating those relationships. They've established these relationships over years of kind of order taking previously. And now, so we have those connections and those relationships. Now we can reach out and say, here's an opportunity for, you know, not only for you to share your thoughts, but for it to reach a wide audience because of the timing behind this particular topic. So we can also go to them and show them the last story that we ran in this fashion got, you know, 100,000 views in the first year. So they're like, oh, well, I want all those people to hear what I have to say. <laughs> no, brilliant. I, I, I love that strategy. And I, lo I love that flip, right? Like of, 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 of moving from this kind of like reactive state to a, a proactive state. And I think that that's what needs to happen, right? People who are on the front lines and understand who, like marketers really should be bringing to the faculty, to these researchers, hey, like 
Great. I know that you're interested in this really obscure thing that like is fascinating you and keeping you up at night, but you're in the 1% of people that are interested in this. Here's what the 99% of people are talking about right now. And you are uniquely qualified to weigh in, you know, on this conversation, you're going to weigh in on this conversation, right? Like, and it, it, it's really cool to sort of see these like dynamics and, and it's really like power dynamics that have like shifted in, some, in, in many respects, right? Because these individuals, especially those who, who are a little bit more, you know, uh, seasoned and, 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 and veteran, this is hard to stomach. I mean, they're, they're, they're used to being the influencers, right? Now influencers have an incredibly different connotation, right? And, and they, they could not look more different from, <laughs> from each other, right? Yeah. And so it's this, it's this really cool dynamic that we're living in where it's like, no, like, hey, you have this expertise. We're going to highlight that expertise in a way that today's consumer is going to find value in. So trust us, right? And it, it just, it's a very like empowering position for marketers in higher ed to be in today. Yeah. And it also gave us the opportunity to, you know, having that data behind us gave us the opportunity to say no to mm. deans and faculty and researchers who came to us and were like, this is a story. This needs to go out to everybody. We're like, well, historically, those stories don't perform well, but <laughs> maybe we can put it on Facebook or maybe we can, you know, maybe this is a LinkedIn post or yeah. give them another option to share their information with the right audience who might be interested in that. But saying that, no, this doesn't belong on the news center because we're really focusing on these more topical, more relevant content. Yeah. Yeah. As you think about sort of like the, the next, you know, uh, era of content marketing, I've been talking about like content marketing 3.0, right. And what does that like mean to you? As you, as you think about the next couple of years, right. You talked about like AR, VR, you talked about sort of like the NFT and, 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 you know, crypto, uh, hype cycles, right. Like how do you think about what's going to happen in not like five, 10 years from now, cause no one knows, but over the next like a couple of years, like where, are you paying close attention to whether it's a social network, whether it's sort of a type of content, like whether it's a particular category of content, like what has your attention right now? Yeah, I think we're going to see more and more institutions starting to lean into content marketing and see the value of content marketing. But I think we're going to have to start thinking more about who the messenger is, who's delivering that content. And hmm. I mean, we are so lucky in higher ed because we have so many potential people who could be delivering our message while also working on their personal brands. So yeah, we've seen more and more schools start using, you know, students, you know, to help them with social or they're creating creator programs for their students to train them how to do that. Yeah, I don't think we see enough of that happening with faculty and staff. I think we have a lot of opportunities there to not only help people build their personal brands, but also at the same time to help elevate the the brand recognition and awareness of the institution. Yeah. I think every time you go out and present at a conference, you are representing the institution and people are going to remember, oh, that, you know, that person from, you know, University of Rochester was talking about this or, or something like that. So I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see really more focus on specific audience. You know, who are you talking to? How can you help them? You know, and then if we start looking at the, the technology changes that we're seeing and how those are going to impact content marketing, I mean, AI obviously is going to have a huge impact on, on what we're doing. It already is. Yeah. The ability to create, you know, virtual personas and audiences to test against uh, or to, you know, to create those tools that we can then use to test all of our content before we put it out there or once it's out there and, and ask what other questions could we answer and what other problems could we solve 
Yeah. Hyper-personalization. I think we're going to see much more of that. So you're only getting, I mean, we send so much content out and we don't do a good job of being consistent across the institution as to who's getting what content. So we may have alumni that get six emails at one time that, you know, five of them may all have, you know, part of the same content in them. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, it's too much. It's, it's content overload. And then, you know, you talk about optimization and distribution and repurposing. I mean, AI will help with, with all of that. Yeah. It's crazy to think even just from a podcasting perspective, right? Like right now we're recording on Riverside and like Riverside has this new feature where like after, after we finish recording this episode, I can in like a click of a button, right? Have these like auto clips like generated, right? Where they're like 60 second clips from what Riverside AI deems is sort of like the most interesting parts of our conversation, right? And then with like a single click, I can download that content. I can upload it to YouTube Shorts or Instagram or like whatever it might be. And and that used to require a video editor. Like you used to have to go and like be like, oh, I got to pass this along. And then, you know, Joe Schmo from, you know, video would be like, oh, all right, you know, Brian, it's going to be three weeks until I can get this to you. And like, it just like wasn't worth doing video because it was just the time, right? And now like, anyone with the access to these tools can be a, a video editor, right? At least for, you know, this kind of content. And that that's just remarkable. It's like, and, and we're just going to see this continue to, to progress change. I want to I circle back to what you said about virtual personas, because I, I actually hadn't even thought about this before. So what you're saying is like, we're entering into a world, I mean, I guess you could probably build this now with like a custom GPT, but like where you build a virtual persona and then you, you're saying that you test out your like campaign strategy and your, your various like deliverables against that persona, that virtual, you know, uh, persona, and then like ask them based off of what I've told you, you are, what do you think about this? And, and, and where are the gaps? Is that kind of how you're thinking about playing this out? Yeah. So we've, we've done that. We've created a custom GPT that is a potential undergraduate student, which ChatGPT helped us to create. We put in a bunch of our, uh, you know, information about our student population and, you know, based on the the existing personas that we had. So we created a digital persona that we put that into a custom GPT. So now I can open that up anytime and say, take a look at our admissions page and see what, you know, what other questions do you have that we aren't answering? Mm. What other information could be helpful in you making your decision? And then we can go to another school and say, what do they have on their admissions page that we might want to include on our page? And what content do you want to see next? And mm. it does a really a pretty good job of giving you some really good insights based on AI-generated personas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the things I think about sometimes is like how how quickly sort of like analogies, they, they become irrelevant, right? Or they go out of style. Um, and especially for like, like, you know, younger populations, something that used to make sense to us, right, and used to be colloquial to 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 us, isn't to, uh, you know, to Gen Z, right. And I think about like, how you could leverage like AI to audit your content, audit examples that you've used, audit positioning statements that you've used, and ask it like, is this still relevant to somebody who was, you know, born after the year 2000? Right. Like, like, do, would they even get this reference? Right. Did they even watch friends? Right. Like, like there, there are just all these things that like we might take for granted because it was just normal to us. Right. And, and yet we could be using language that like a 17 year old legitimately does not understand. Like they have no context for it. And that's a stupid, simple example. But being able to run all of that against a virtual representation of your ideal student population 
that's like a no brainer. Like everybody should at least be doing that. Yeah. And especially when you start thinking about, you know, international students who, who English isn't their first language, mm. you can tell the AI, you know, what level of reading is this? And is this, is this easily understandable? We've had it rewrite uh, some of our global admissions pages and it just like takes out all the jargon and it yeah. brings the level, the the language down to a very basic understandable level that's, you know, easily bulleted out with very clear directions and it can make a huge difference on how many people will actually be able to get through your admissions process because it just makes it more understandable for them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. How much training did you have to put into your custom GPT? Cause like, like I've built a couple, I probably, I'm just sort of lazy. So like, I probably only put maybe like a couple hours of like time into, into, into building it. Right. And you know, one of them is, is what I use for like my post-production for my podcast, right? Like helping me come up with like a good title and a, you know, good description. And I like, I have a very specific way I like to craft descriptions. And so I have a custom GPT for that. And it's probably like 78%, you know, of the way there, right? And I know that I could probably get it closer to like a 90% if I gave it more inputs and 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 really just did a better job of like saying, hey, here are like the 160 podcasts that I've recorded. Can you just look through all of this and like recognize like the adjectives that I like to use and like the tone of voice that I have and all that fun stuff. And I have not done that yet. But I think what some of the pushback that we get from folks sometimes are like, oh, yeah, I built a custom GPT and it sucked, right? Like, and it's like, well, you, you know, you you gave it three prompts, right? And now you're trying to ask it to do something incredibly challenging. So, like, how have you guys thought about training your custom GPT? A lot of the training comes from testing. So you have to, like, pressure test it over and over and over and think about, okay, now if, if I want to look at this, if I was this kind of student, what sort of thing? You have to think of the answers yourself before you ask the custom GPT to give you the answers and be like, well, no, it really needs to be more like this. Hmm. So it's a lot of going back and like retraining, you know, add, add, just adding more. It's like, oh, it didn't do this well. Well, let me go in here and, and add this into the, you know, configuration settings so that now it will address that. I have another custom GPT that I use for like meal planning and and recipe ideas. And it will actually, because I have trained it, how my grocery store that I go to is laid out, it will give me my shopping list for all the recipes that I'm making in order based on how I like to shop. So it's really thinking about how to personalize it to your user so that it, it creates and adds value for them. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's amazing. That's that's so beautiful. One of the things that I've found most helpful recently, I'm working on this like survey analysis right now based off of a survey that uh, Enrolf I ran with a, a partner of ours. And, you know, uh, I, I hate Excel. And I used to have somebody on, like, on my team who was like, like a master of pivot tables and just like a master of all things Excel. And for lots of reasons, I'm doing this analysis myself. So I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to just use ChatGPT to help me out here. And honestly, like it, I, I won't lie. It, it has taken a fair amount of time. It probably have been like technically quicker and faster to just do this with somebody who really knows Excel, but that's not me. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm average at Excel and this is a little bit of a more complex project. So, I, but I have been amazed, amazed at like w the questions I can ask. And I'm actually, the survey is going to be a 10 times better than it would have been simply because I can ask questions 
that are much, much more specific that otherwise, like I wouldn't have asked or wouldn't have looked into just because of time. Like, it's like, I don't want, I don't know how to like get the answer to this question without doing all these crazy formulas. You know, I wonder like what people who work at graduate schools with enrollment under a thousand spend on Facebook compared to what they spend on TikTok, right? Let's just look at that segment. And I can get that answer in seconds. And it's just, it's amazing. Whereas like, again, I, I would have never pulled that data before because of time. Right. Yeah. We've saved months of time. Just in the last couple of weeks, we did an audit on a 30,000 page site. And normally, you know, you, you look at what the high performers are and you look at your Google Analytics and your, your search results and you kind of aggregate the top ones of those to figure out what you're going to focus on. Yeah. Because it just it's too time consuming to integrate all that data for all those rows across all those different data sets. Uh, I took it into chat GPT and within maybe an hour of massaging the prompts and figuring out how to break up the files because there was too much data in it for it to process all at once. And now we have a master list that's 80,000 rows of every page that's on the site and how it performs and what it's ranking for and what the potential is for it. And we just never would have been able to do that before. Wow. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, as we prepare to wrap, I have a couple of final questions for you. One is just around... Uh, we're talking about AI here, right? And so like, what does this mean for the future of content marketing, right? So uh, some of the critique, which I think is very fair, is like, you can tell when somebody is just using ChatGPT to pump out like a bunch of blog posts, right? Like, it's so obvious, um, especially when they're, you know, classic 350 to 500 word posts. And they're kind of like the listicles, you know, from from yesteryear that, that have kind of like resurfaced, right? And it's clear that it's like just like an SEO play for people. But I wonder, I want to understand sort of like from your perspective, how do you think content marketing evolves in in this era of, of AI? Like, what, what are some things that you're paying close attention to in, you know, a moment where content is in from some people's perspectives, becoming a commodity. Yeah. And I think, I think we're going to have less opportunities to do like SEO on the basic questions. We're not going to be able to answer those anymore because they're answered by a hundred different websites. And, you know, when uh, the generative AI search returns the result, it's going to cobble all those together. So I think it's going to come down to how do you specialize what are your real differentiators and what stories do you have to tell? What human stories do you have to tell hmm. that, that could connect with people? And I think, you know, the, the value of content marketing is that it builds that trust with your audience and it brings them in. And I think the ultimate kind of like final expression of having that trust is, is through building community. Hmm. I really think that community is going to be the future of, higher education of brands, of businesses surviving, especially in this, you know, AI generated world that we're, that we're all living in. Uh, and, and it's going to only get worse with the amount of, you know, common content out there. So I think it's really going to be how we can build trust with an audience so that when they have a question about, you know, optics research, they know, well, I want to go to the, the optics community that is driven by University of Rochester or whoever the expert is and get my answers in there from a real person who's, you know, had these real life experiences who I saw at a conference. And, and I think that is really where higher education is going to lead, at least from a marketing perspective. I think we're, we're also going to have to start thinking about, you know, as 
as education is democratized, as online delivery and virtual delivery of content becomes uh, more and more common, we're really going to have to start thinking about how to create uh, experience marketing and opportunity marketing and say, Mm. this is what getting this education can provide for you. This is the benefit of taking this path versus taking another path and really trying to create and trying to match the right student with the right program based on, you know, what they eventually want to do or what eventually gives them satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I think, I think too, just even five years ago when people used to say, you know, the right student, right program, right time. Right. And, and, and all like even five years ago, all of that was technically possible. And, and I think that that like that that's been true for a while. The problem is it has not, even though it's been technically possible, the lift in order to make it realistic and turn it into a reality was just not, not feasible. Like people couldn't justify the time, quite frankly, even though it was technically possible. Now, right, we're living in a world where actually, no, the time can be justified because if you know what you're doing, once you become a little bit familiar with how to write great prompts, you can actually produce this content at scale so that you can get to the right program, right student, right time sort of reality. And, and it seems to me too, based off of what you've shared is like, in many respects, we are kind of, and we talked about this early on, but we're, we're sort of coming back to the beginning of, of content marketing of like, hey, you're not going to be able to compete at the performance level anymore, right? There's somebody out there that's going to create more content more frequently around a topic than you're able to do. They're going to have more resources than you're able to do. And so at the end of the day, like it's almost as if from an attention perspective and trying to attract new attention and retain that attention, you got to get back to your storytelling roots, right? And and ultimately, like you just have to tell incredible story. Like you, you can't rely on SEO anymore. Like, like there, there's a world in which you just can't, you're not going to be able to compete at that level. So if you're trying to attract a certain population, you're going to have to get to them another way. And I think back to my my early days as a content marketer, and like one of the things that we talked a lot about was like, your content needs to be incredibly inspiring and create a ton of value. And it's almost like we lost that a little bit along the way because it was like, oh, well, yes, but you know, it's also going to be optimized for Google. You, you know, let's build out these topic clusters. Let's build out like 10,000 pages using this particular cluster of keywords and like, oh, that, I mean, the traffic is like responds and the, the conversion happens and, and that'll happen for the last decade. Right. And, and, and now maybe we're entering a moment where it's like, oh, mm. there are tools that can produce at a level that humans will never be able to produce at. And so the only thing left for us to do, quite frankly, is to leverage those tools first and foremost uh, to the best that we can, but then two, right, to create incredible story that in many ways is going to rise above whatever whatever tool that we're that, that we're using or whatever strategy that we're that we're trying to employ. Yeah, the next generation of students is is very intelligent. They're very digitally savvy, and they know when content is just trying to capture them and pull them in. But they're looking for that connection. They're looking for that belonging. They're looking for an institution that matches up with their thoughts and beliefs. And I think if we can just provide that content on the channels where they are and consistently reach out, that will help with that, you know, discoverability and and the the no like and trust. You know, you want to find content at each stage of that that will help guide them through that process. So well said. 
Well, Brian, this is uh, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate all the work that you do, and am thankful for this time to to chat. If folks want to reach out, if they want to, you know, buy your book, if they want to learn a little bit more about you, if they just want to connect, if they want to give you a follow, like where should people go? You can go to brianwpiper.com. Uh, I have a newsletter up there that I send out every week. It's just one content marketing tip every week. And also, I'm Brian W. Piper on almost any social channel. So feel free to reach out. Always glad to connect with new people and talk about content marketing, data, AI, SEO, all, all these great topics. Beautiful. Well, we'll have links to your social profiles and your website in the show notes below. So friends, if you're tuning in and you want to follow Brian and or connect with him and or subscribe to his newsletter, just go on to the show notes below and pick your favorite link of choice. Brian, thanks so much for your time, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Enrollify podcast. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing and missions and higher technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks, all designed to empower you to be a better higher ed professional. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea and feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. You can learn from Jamie Hunt, Allison Tercio, Artis Cadu, Day Kibbles, Dustin Ramsdale, Terry Flannery, and so many other of your favorite leaders in higher ed. Enrollify is made possible by Element 451, the leading AI-powered CRM for higher education. Learn more about how to leverage technology to engage the next generation of students in the ways that they want to be engaged at element451.com.